welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Somaru. Hey everybody, my guest this week is Dr. Philip Alvelder. He's a scientist, engineer, serial entrepreneur, and an educator, and he's currently founder and CEO of Brainworks, which I'll tell you about in a second. So he's previously worked at DARPA, which is the central R&D development organization for the US Department of Defense. So they maintain the technological superiority of the US military. He's worked at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab, where he developed sensors that have flown all the way through the solar system. He's founded technology companies, media companies, telecommunications companies, and a non-profit too. And he's currently, as I say, founder and CEO of Brainworks, and they leverage the latest pioneering discoveries in neuroscience to build complete whole brain AI systems that society can trust with life or death decisions. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Great. So Philip, welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing this morning, sir? Or this afternoon? What time is it for you? I don't even know. <laughs> yes, it's, uh, it's late morning for me here. Late morning. I thought so. I was right here. the first time. James, Milwaukee. Excellent. Excellent. Pleasure to be here, James. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome, sir. Very welcome. Um, yes, yeah, so whereabouts are you speaking to us from? I suppose you're at home right now. Yes, yes. Everyone here in the, in the East Coast of the US, for the most part at the moment anyway, uh, is in uh, shelter-in-place uh, directives. So I'm I'm speaking from my home office in uh, in Arlington, Virginia. Lovely, lovely. Uh, how are you adjusting to the new normal? How's the company doing? Well, you know, it's uh, it's a time of great stress, uh, as you know, for everyone, I think. And uh, for a startup, it's particularly challenging. But, you know, it's one of those moments where in crisis lies opportunity. And yeah. uh, we happen to be, you know, very well positioned with a technology and a service that was designed to decentralize healthcare, really. Uh, and boy, isn't that just what you need when bringing people together in one facility is a bad idea with uh, a contagious virus at hand. So uh, we're, we're finding uh, very high demand for the kinds of technologies we're developing for telehealth services and, yeah. and removing the requirements for touching people and, and risking uh, uh, you know, infection through contact. It's it's an interesting point, actually, because I was speaking to a remote monitoring company this morning from the UK, and they were saying that, you know, they are remote monitoring, but also they, in the very early days of when they started, got used to even setting it up remotely because they had a a client in the Orkney Islands, which is sort of north of Scotland um, for for us people here in the UK. So, yeah, impossible to get to. they, They learned the hard way in terms of even setting up their remote service remotely, and they said it's paying dividends right now. Which is uh, which is quite interesting. But I guess that's a bit of a spoiler alert for what's coming on later in the podcast when you tell us about Brainworks. But the way that we begin these podcasts normally, Philip, is that I get you to tell your story. So um, it'd be great to hear about uh, your early career and and what led you to become an entrepreneur. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great question. You know, I I often reflect on that as as someone engaged in teaching and mentorship quite heavily. Uh, I am often asked, you know, what is it that, that put you where you were? Uh, and I think I'd, I'd have to reach back and credit my parents somewhat because, you know, I was always a little bit of a kind of a nerd habit inclined kid. Uh, but it was mostly due to the, not, not some concerted campaign by my parents, but just, you know, they were people that were, you know, deep thinkers. You know, mom was a, was a professor and a medical microbiologist, uh, taught medical school, worked at the CDC, uh, and so there was always a, a culture of, you know, bringing interesting things home. And, and dad, for his part, you know, he was an engineer, 
uh, and uh, you know was one of the early computer pioneers uh, that worked on one of the first uh, computers IBM ever built. Oh wow! Uh, and so both of them, you know, I would say that I, I ended up as a kind of a scientist and a technical person, you know, despite my schooling. You know, because of the interesting stuff my parents would bring home, and they'd, they'd often say, oh, you know, what, what you're learning in school isn't really science, it's kind of history of science, and it's boring. You know, here, here's something interesting for you. And then they just kind of plunk it down in the living room and, uh, and, and, wow. and you know, didn't really, you know, force me to do anything, but just always have interesting bits and bobs around that, uh, that I At just... the cutting edge as well, right? About. Yeah, and, and so, you know, we try to do the same thing with our kids. So, you know, as you might imagine, our, our home is a a haven for uh, all sorts of Lego <laughs> and electronics and optics and uh, you know uh, and then of course the, the our, our two daughters uh, are saying dad I don't want to be like you and then, then they're, they resist and resist and resist but I just you know I don't force it uh, and turns out you know our eldest uh, ended up uh, applying to the physics program at, uh, at Boulder so you know she's uh, assuming they off, uh, open uh, campus next uh, next fall <laughs> nice. she's off in a, in a similar direction despite her initial resistance um, but so, but you know it's that it's that sort of um, you know having the right environment uh, for innovation and curiosity to thrive and and thinking more about inspiration and and, um, and discovery and wonder and creation. Uh, more than, you know, memorization and rote and record keeping yeah. and bookkeeping and that sort of thing that I think, uh, you know, heads people in, in more interesting career directions. Nice. And so did you, I mean, how, how did you acquire all the skills then to, to become an entrepreneur? Do you think that was something you were born with or did you kind of, did you study business in college? Did, I mean, talk me through kind of the, the acquisition of the skills that you thought yeah, you know, or I, you think I, are necessary. I, I think the, the, the most important skill was one of uh, kind of curiosity and exploration and confidence. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I never got a business degree and, uh, my undergraduate was in physics at, at, at Cornell with, uh, you know, work in astrophysics and computer science. And, uh, and then I got this fabulous job, you know, out of school uh, at NASA, uh, building sensors for, for various spacecraft. And, wow. uh, and, I, and I had thought at the time that I'd blown it because, you know, I'd, I'd interviewed at NASA, wasn't sure I got the job. Um, and then, you know, a couple of weeks after my interview, the, the space shuttle blew up. And, uh, and I was thinking, oh, God, I'm going to go to NASA and they're going to shut down the program and I'm not going to get to do anything. But the timing yeah. turned out to be perfect because, you know, I ended up working on instruments that flew to three different planets in the space shuttle Whoa. Uh, and then got into the Department of Defense, you know, working on uh, the Star Wars program for uh, the Strategic Defense Initiative in, in the Ronald Reagan era. Uh, and then uh, and then, you know, curiously, kind of in a, in a segue to, to what I'm doing now, um, they were asking us, well, well, can you track things like ballistic missiles, you know, using the instruments, the sensors and the computers you're, you're putting in the spacecraft today? And, you know, thinking back to that era, I mean, it's hard for people working in tech to imagine now, but the, the instruments that we were putting, the computers we were putting in these spacecraft, um, they had less processing power than your Fitbit does yeah. on your wrist. Yeah. And so, you know, the answer at that time was, you know, realistically, no, we can't quite, you know, sort out, you know, chaff and, and, and missiles and noise and things like that on anything we could loft into space anytime soon, uh, just because the computers weren't capable enough. You know, the sensors we could, we could more or less manage, but the computers really weren't, weren't quite there. And, uh, and so I, I was one of the first people they recruited to be in this new neural computation and nonlinear science group uh, to begin thinking about how can you build computers that, that work more like the human brain. Um, 
And, uh, and, and that, of course, you know, led me later after that to grad school at the AI lab at MIT. And, um, and I, you know, I had every intention to be a professor or, you know, some technical yeah. scientist at Bell Labs or sign off. And I, I kept giving these job talks um, where I talk about my, my PhD dissertation work and, uh, you know, how it was cool and optical computing and materials and all this, you know, technical sexiness. And, uh, and there's this one moment where I'm, I'm waiting for a friend in the bookstore, you know, kind of how, how what, what does that tell you about me, right? We, we agree on <laughs> one person's late, you know, you're, you're reading, right? Uh, and, uh, and, I, and I was, you know, standing around one of the chirons at the front of the store, and I kind of leaned up against it and knocked a book off of it. And I leaned down to pick up the book, and, and it was this book called Startup, A Silicon Valley Adventure. It was a story by Jerry Kaplan about... Uh, you know, his exploits beginning the Go Corporation. So this was like the first company that was was seeking to invent a, a pen tablet computer. Yeah. And um, and I and I opened it up and I read the jacket, uh, you know, the, the little prologue in the inside yeah. of the jacket. And uh, and and it said, you know, to, to kind of paraphrase it uh, quickly, uh, you know, it had Jerry's old mentor with his arm around, you know, this the Jerry, the, the kind of novel CEO, the novice CEO. <laughs> You know, commiserating as as the the whole assets of the Go Corporation are being liquidated on. <laughs> so, so at the very introduction, you're like, "Oh, this story didn't go." Very well. <laughs> and and the thing that captured me though was that like in a few paragraphs, you know, they he outlines that the, you know the mentor Mitch Kaplan, the, actually the, the Mitch Kapoor, actually the the the, um, the founder of uh, the, the spreadsheet, really uh, the creator of the original spreadsheet. He's telling Jerry. You know, Jerry, don't don't feel bad. You know, the Go Corporation itself was a failure, but everything that you do here will live on in the DNA of Silicon Valley, and you'll see it come up again and again. And you made meaningful contributions that will, you know, percolate on into the future. And of course, you know, I'm I'm talking to you sitting next to, you know, my iPhone and my my tablet. Yeah, of course. That are the, you know, the direct lineage of that, uh, and and that that notion of. You know, even if you take a big swing and you miss and strike out a couple times uh, and end up, uh, you know, liquidating your company, uh, yeah, you've uh, you've you've contributed to uh, you know a, a, the technological future, and uh, and and I think you know for me one of the really early formative influences was um, you know the fact that my dad was a, was a huge science fiction reader, and when I was about eight years old. Uh, I discovered this giant box of, you know, paperback science fiction books in the attic and then more or less disappeared for a month <laughs> you know, re reading all the books. And, I, and, and since that time, I've just been an avid science fiction reader uh, and loved imagining, you know, how could you build a better future tomorrow and, and how could it be different? And, you know, mm. yeah, there are plenty of dystopian ones, but but the, the ones that always captured me were, you know, if we could build this widget or, you know, solve this problem or understand this scientific process and, and use it to build a better world, a better economy, a better political structure, you know, how can you imagine that in the future? Mm -hmm. uh, and candidly, you know, I've just managed to make a career of do, doing just that. And it's, it's, it's a blast because every day is different, every challenge yeah. is different, and you're always working to make uh, important change. You know, it's, you talk, you mentioned the word environment when you first started, you know, telling this story and you mentioned your parents, you know, 
mum being from the medical world, dad being from an you know the engineering world, them always focused on you know the cutting edge and the future, and and you also having a natural passion and affinity for looking at those things, being interested in those things, you know, science fiction even being you know the fictional version of that, you know, and that projection into the future and. You know, there's a lot of entrepreneurs talk about intent and, you know, if as long as you intend for something, then you'll make a lot of individual decisions throughout every day that will eventually lead you there. And it seems like you had the environment, you had the intent. And so it almost seemed like a foregone conclusion that you're going to, you're going to end up in this world, you know, you know, marrying the biology with the engineering and, and, and that side of things. And it, it, um, yeah, really really ideal way to start life if, if you, you know, going to try and change the world. Right. Yeah. You know, and, and it's a, I, I think, you know, you, you've focused on a couple of areas that I think are really important. You know, one, I think if I look at all the best entrepreneurs that, that I know, um, I think they, they have a couple of common personality characteristics. One is a certain dissatisfaction yeah, <laughs> you know, with, yeah, with the way they totally are, or you know, the limitations in design, and 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 I think the the second thing is a little bit of hubris, really, where you imagine that you yourself, if you could just think about it hard enough and work hard enough, <laughs> yeah. circle up the right talent and, and yeah. you know, inspire them and lead them, you could actually make it better. Um, and then the last one is, I think, an aspect of impatience. Yeah. Like, I, I don't want to wait for someone else to do it, you know, for crying out loud, how hard can it be? <laughs> you know, let's get to work and, and, and make it happen. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I think if you, if you look at that, it's, it's, um, it's a very different mindset that is, I, in my view, you know, passingly rare and in a really unfortunate way. Uh, you know, you have so much of today's culture and tradition and observance of habit and, um, rote processes and, um, you know, process compliance and, and companies with, you know, specific goals and operations. And, and in a way, all of those things are barriers to making things better. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, I think that when you have these large, these large shocks to the system, like, like we're experiencing now with, with the COVID crisis, um, you know, there have been plenty of people that have been talking about telehealth for decades. Yeah. Uh, there have been plenty of telehealth solutions. And, and in fact, you know, when I was at DARPA, uh, you know, working in the biological technologies office, you know, we had a group that was working entirely on pandemic prediction, detection, and, uh, and, um, and modeling and prevention and response. And, you know, these people were telling us, you know, 15, 20 years ago, that uh, that we were headed for a crisis, and then no one would listen. You know, they 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 joked about you know, geez, it's like it's like being on the beach, knowing that the tsunami is coming because we've got the satellites, and <laughs> shouting at everyone on the beach, saying the tsunami's coming, the tsunami's yeah. coming, and uh, and they're looking around, and all they see is the sunny day, and yeah. look, the water's going out, not in. Yeah. Why are you worried? <laughs> Uh, and, and and of course, you know, they they've been shouting for quite some time, and and now, of course. Uh, I think there's kind of incontrovertible evidence that they were worth paying attention to and we're a little overdue now. Um, but, but this is a moment where, you know, a lot of the, I think, papered over um, ills of, of our respective healthcare systems are being rather violently exposed as, as flawed. Yeah. And, and so I think that, you know, in this crisis, um, I do think that the tools that, that are admittedly in, in their early stages of development and deployment 
industry-wise um, are critical and yeah. do need to be deployed. And, and everyone sees how the world has changed. I mean, literally overnight where, you know, all of our, you know, kind of economic underpinnings of how do you efficiently address needs at scale? You know, while you, you bring services together in centralized institutions, you know, if you want to teach people, you bring them all together in a school where one teacher can teach many people in person. If you want to treat their health, you aggregate them in a hospital where one doctor can treat many patients in parallel. Um, but of course, now the centralized model is exposed as being very, very vulnerable to a pandemic and killing people yeah. in the process of centralization. So yeah. uh, I think I think you're going to see some really beneficial trends that begin to take root and grow now in this crisis to respond directly to the pandemic that will, in fact, drive healthcare in a much needed uh, expansion and, and uh, reinvention. It's so true. Necessity is the mother of invention, right? Indeed. Indeed. Um, so I, I want to talk through a bit about your kind of your route into health tech because Brainworks isn't your first company, is it, by any means? You, you've no. had a, a few companies before and you mentioned DARPA as well. Could you just run us through uh, the companies that you've had before and I guess kind of top line, like what you learned from them and I guess plot that journey into Brainworks for me? Sure. Uh, well, the first company I started out of grad school kind of grew out of my PhD thesis where, you know, I was working on making optical computers that were, you know, think of a silicon chip and then layering a liquid crystal display directly on the silicon chip. Um, and, and I would go and I'd give job talks and, and people would say, wow, that's interesting. But, you know, when can I get one of those as a display, maybe for virtual reality glasses or a projection TV or something like that? And anyway, that, that was the, the era when I knocked the book off the Chiron in the bookstore, yeah. <laughs> ended up yeah. starting what, what became the Micro Display Corporation. And, uh, and then, you know, we, we designed the tiny little uh, liquid crystal displays that ultimately ended up in the, the Google Glass. Oh, wow. Uh, and so, you know, that was, uh, that was a great kind of technological tour de force. It was not a great commercial success. Um, mostly for a matter of timing. We, we had the, uh, the ill fortune to be trying to build a display technology and manufacturing company right when the dot-com boom was beginning. Yeah. Uh, and none of the venture or private equity groups wanted to invest money in hard capital infrastructure Fair. and grow a manufacturing capability. Uh, so we, we were just starved for capital through the whole process just by not being aligned with kind of the, the investment fad of the day. Yeah, of the time, uh, yeah. And, uh, and ultimately, you know, it, it ended up being licensed into a couple of companies and ended up in Google's hands in the long run. Um, so, you know, I think uh, for us, uh, you know, we, we came out, you know, more or less financially intact, but didn't make a tremendous amount of money, you know, despite the kind of technological accolades. Um, that company led directly to my second one, uh, which, which began as a company uh, to deliver um, kind of the wireless internet. So we... we one of the products we did at the Micro Display Corporation at the end was we actually built the first cell phone with a with a super high resolution display and a camera in it, uh, in a uh, a prototype for the army. Oh wow! And uh, and and what we learned was the 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 stuff that we thought was going to be hard, which is all the, the packaging and the display and the optics, turned out to be easy. The stuff that we didn't even think about, which was okay, now you've got a high resolution image that you want to get over a wireless network. How do you do that? <laughs> Uh, yeah. That part didn't work at all and, and turned out to consume the, the majority of that whole project uh, resources. So uh, we started a new company that uh, that was designed to 
um, kind of make the wire the, the wireless internet possible by accelerating data delivery over the carrier uh, network infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And so that that was growing you know, gangbusters, 400% year on year. Uh, and then, of course, the dot-com crisis hit us again on the way down. Oh, Crashed. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, and, and at that time, you know, we had, we had all our customers who think of the, the Siemenses and the Nokias and the, and the, you know, yeah, of course, yeah. at that time, the, the Verizons and the AT&Ts of the world. Uh, so for the British consumers, you know, O2 and, and Vodafone, et cetera, yeah. um, they all you know, over the course of a week told us we were not going to buy anything for three years. So, you know, that, that was a, a, a tough moment where we could, you know, put the X on the, on the calendar to show you yeah. know, we're going to die. <laughs> Uh, and so, you know, we, we had to pivot pretty, pretty drastically to, uh, use the infrastructure we built to send, uh, to, to sell things to consumers. And ultimately we decided, we, we realized we could use our new data delivery platform to deliver live television, which no one had thought was possible. Uh, uh and so that became Moby TV. That's the biggest company, uh, which, uh, you know, we invented the technology that made live streaming television over the, the mobile networks possible. Amazing. Won a technical Emmy award for it, you know, grew it onto three continents. And, and, you know, that was, that was an amazing ride, you know, start to finish. Um, subsequent to that, uh, I got recruited to go back to DARPA, uh, where, you know, there was some interest in kind of neural interface technologies. And, uh, and I. And by the way, for the listeners, DARPA stands for Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, right? Yes, thank you. Yeah, that's the agency <laughs> that, uh, by the way, for, for those of you not, not familiar, um, if you think about the underpinnings of modern society and, and technology, uh, and specifically um, semiconductors, uh, computer chips, microprocessors, the internet, uh, GPS technologies. Uh, stealth technologies, all sorts of military technologies as well. But, but those things were all invented because DARPA, as, as an agency, a government agency investing in technical research in the United States, hired someone with a vision for what might be possible and got them to organize you know, a federal investment and, and research and development uh, finance program to make those technologies and industries happen. This place just sounds so fun. Oh, it, well, you know, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a combination of great and banal. I mean, the great is you right. people in the world, uh, and the banal is you're part of a federal machinery with slowly moving gears. Yeah, so, of course. Right. Of course. You know, so I'll, I'll tell you, I, I had, you know, a, a mix of great times, you know, working with the, you know, the, the global genius pool, uh, <laughs> and then, you know, a fair amount of frustration, you know, waiting for decisions and funding and yeah, sure. for the, for the wheels to turn. But, you know, overall it was a fantastic experience. And, um, and I, and I realized, you know, at one point that the different types of technologies that I had, you know, passed and, and, and touched in some way or another in my, the history of my career, um, had all reached a point where if you aggregated them and put them together in an integrated system, we could actually make a brain machine interface that would allow you to control things with your thoughts. And right. you know, when I, when I arrived on the scene and started working on this, you know, DARPA by that time had already invested in programs to, um, uh, to be able to connect uh, prosthetic arms into the nervous system and have them controlled by, by quadriplegic patients and that sort of thing. Uh, but my wow. vision was, you know, really goose up the technology, use the very latest CMOS uh, microprocessor uh, capabilities, use the latest optics, the latest computational neuroscience, use the latest medical packaging, uh, and make things that would have, you know, a high enough information content interface 
that you could not just, you know, have slow herky-jerky motion of a robot arm, uh, but you could actually begin to relay, you know, enough sensation that you could, uh, you could relay sight and sound and other wow. more complex and, and richer, you know, stimuli and sensory information. That's bold, and, uh, if I do say so. <laughs> yes, well, you know, it was one of those things where I, I had hoped that my venture capitalist friends, you know, even some that I'd made a few hundred million bucks would, would fund it. But, you know, every time I would go and give one of these meetings, they'd say something like, oh, Philip, you read too much science fiction, which is yeah. probably true. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, but, you know, I, I actually thought that this was really doable. And, and so I went and I pitched DARPA with the intent of, of getting money from them. Uh, you know, to, to be sponsored to do this, perhaps, you know, for a few years at a, in a university like MIT or somewhere where I, I had roots. Um, and, uh, and, and then, you know, begin spinning off companies. But when I went, you know, they more or less gave me a job offer on the spot and said, this is exactly the thing we'd like you to do. Why don't we, instead of giving you, you know, 10 or 15 million bucks to go do it at a university, come to DARPA, we'll give you 10 times that much money and you can make wow. this happen on a, on a nationwide scale. Uh, and just make sure it happens, you know, in the West with our allies to, to, to be sure that, you know, we can have a responsible ethical framework around it and, uh, and, and, and you know, have uh, defenses in case the technology starts to be misused. I was going to say, it's an incredible amount of responsibility that must come with, um, with a brief like that. It, it does. And, and you know, it, it, I have to, you know, give DARPA and the, and the leadership there a lot of credit. Um, you know, from the very beginning, I was committed to having it be open research and, um and, and, and not classified in any way and uh, to make sure that a, an important part of it was the ethical framework and, and yeah. management and oversight of, you know, external review and that sort of thing. And, uh, and the leadership really stepped up and, and helped us put together a, a, a phenomenal uh, panel of, of uh, individual advisors who, who helped guide us through the whole thing. And, and you know, this was, um, for me, this was a, a, an unusually apt opportunity to contribute to the world where, you know, I really did have a chance to deploy a, a very large kit of money uh, over three continents and, and catalyze an entirely new industry. Wow, that's um, amazing. And so, you know, now, of course, you know, you, you see a little bit of the results, you know, kind of, and, and, and I want to, I want to highlight, you know, we're, we funded, you know, some $175 million of, of programs that I managed, you know, directly or indirectly, um, you know, for things like, um, you know, computing and algorithms that, that, that would translate uh, neural impulses into, you know, MPEG videos and then back and forth. Wow. Um, and, and all the way to, you know, the, the microelectronics and the photonics and the genetic engineering that allows you to optically interface, um, you know, with millions of neurons in parallel in the brain as you're thinking. Wow. Uh, and, you know, it, it really was a, a technical tour de force by the time we were done. You know, we had the things working in uh, rodents and then sheep and then, you know, near human primates. And uh, then they're going into humans, you know, this year uh, to, to cure blindness and deafness. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. And, you know, I think the, the biggest thing that, that DARPA, you know, is so practiced and, and, and influential in is, is not just funding the initial technology demonstration and research, but, but almost, you know, building the ecosystem, like making the different people that had never talked to each other before because they're in disparate disciplines. So, you know, having the computational neuroscience people talk to the optics and photonics people and this talk to the, you know, the, the medical packaging and integration. This is, and the this is where innovation people. happens. That's right. You have to bring all yeah. the pieces together to make these complex systems happen. Um, and they just weren't aware of what was state of the art. And, and you know, yeah. the fun part of that really was, um, 
you know, showing up at, at a conference and, and recruiting people from all these things that had never been in a conference together before. Awesome. And, uh, and having, you know, and, and, and literally, you know, I would stand up and say, look, you know, we think it's possible from, you know, physics first principles perspective to, to interface with millions of neurons at a time. Yep. And at the time, you know, the state of the art was like these hundred wires that they would shove into your, <laughs> into your motor cortex and everyone kind of cringes <laughs> at the idea, right? Um, and so for me to stand up and say, okay, I think we can do a million, you know, pretty much I'd say everyone in the audience thought I was smoking the drips. Yeah, it just checks out. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, um, you know, but but what I did say at that time was, you know, all of the individual components, you have state-of-the-art capabilities that lets you solve your part of the problem. You just aren't aware that the other parts are solved too. Yeah. All you need to do is talk amongst you and, uh, and you can make it happen. Anyway, long story short, that, that industry now has, has grown quite a lot. Um, you know, of the, the people that we invited to the workshops and, and, and funded and, and the different in individual uh, technology silos, many of those people are now kind of the core constituencies of, you know, Elon Musk's Neuralink, uh, Brian wow. Johnson's Kernel, uh, the GlaxoSmithKline Google joint venture, uh, Galvani that does electromedicine, uh, you know, the Facebook mental typewriter, the, um, you know, the, the Boston Scientific and Medtronic, you know, next generation deep brain stimulators. So we really did manage to catalyze an industry. And, you know, for me personally, uh, the thing that I ended up with was once we started putting these uh, instruments next to the brain and, and looking at millions of neurons in parallel, um, you know, for the first time, we, we began to learn what was really happening from an engineering precision perspective in, in the brain. And sure. I want to highlight, you know, the, the neuroscientists, they've, they've had, you know, theories of how the visual cortex works and uh, general operating principles. But but when you ask them, all right, I've got this MPEG video, how do I translate that into nerve impulses so that it's <laughs> impression, they would just kind of look at you blankly. <laughs> and, you know, and, and, and once we had these instruments that you could, you know, put next to the brain and see millions of neurons, you know, acting in, in unison, uh, and begin parceling out, you know, what are the codes, you know, we really were able to begin making, you know, these transcoding algorithms that would translate from MPEG to brain. Uh, and, and so that, you know, that sort of uh, kind of new rewrite of, of neuro, you know, kind of neurological operating principles from an engineering perspective, um, put me in a position to think about how would you apply them to build a next generation of AI that uses some of these new principles that no one had realized before. Sounds so simple when you put it like that, Philip. But I mean, I, even when you're explaining that, you know, it's um, it's it's just such a new paradigm. I imagine when you were, you know, even talking about the the notion of turning MPEG videos into neural impulses. You know, it's it, it, it's this thing coming out. I think that that takes us right back to the start of this episode. You know, the fact that you've always got this vision of the future, and you know, you can be shown an MPEG turning into a neural impulse, but then you then you want to innovate with it. You want to actually solve a problem with it, and That's right. it's amazing just hearing that kind of problem solving mentality and that kind of motivation and passion come through in your voice. It definitely um it definitely explains how how you are where you are. Yeah, and, and I and I think that you know for me it's a it's a labor of love and and you know if you ask any technologist you know a lot of people think that uh, you know much of Silicon Valley and the innovation economy there is is kind of financially driven and and there is certainly an element to that and, and you know you look at the financial arms of the business and that 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 tends to dominate some people's view but I would say the vast majority of, of the technologists there are actually more driven by the idea of impact no. and, and you know what is it what is it that you can do to um, to, to really have a meaningful impact in, in a beneficial way. 
yeah. uh, in the world. And, um, and, and I think the, the, the people that I really love to hang out with are the, are the people that are always thinking about that and, and not just thinking about it, but, you know, have, have some practice of saying, all right, like you said, you know, this is a tough problem. There's a lot of pieces, you know, who can help us solve which piece? How do you break a, a big problem down into smaller, more manageable pieces and start tackling them one by one until, you know, in aggregate, you have a brain interface or yeah. a flying car, you know, or, or whatever it is that, uh, you know, you decide to pursue in the long run. So Brainworks then came out of all of this, right? That's right. That's right. And so it was, it was the idea of, you know, the possibility that we can build thinking machines that are, you know, first a little bit more uh, like humans. And I, I want to avoid kind of the trap of saying, oh, we've developed general artificial intelligence. I'm not proposing that we've done yeah. that. Um, Another bold claim, but, if you but, were to make yeah, it. <laughs> well, we could have a longer conversation about that's probably worth a podcast in and of itself. Um, but uh, you know, happy, happy to have that conversation, by the way. But uh, but but for this one, I think um, you know the goal for us was to realize that we could fill in a little bit more of the missing pieces of the brain that don't exist in machine learning yet. So, mm. for example, you know, take take the state of the art machine learning systems today. Uh, like the, the, the architectures that, that are used to identify faces and photos. You know, that's about equivalent to maybe a cubic centimeter, maybe a couple cubic centimeters of tissue in the back of your head. Okay, it's a cool. very specialized process that does a very specialized thing. Um, and as long as the problem definition is very constrained in a narrow domain, okay, yes, you see an image, you pull out, there's a face. Got it. Yeah. But but, but if you start to ask value judgments, do I like that person? Do I trust that person? Would I give them money? Should I give them money? You know, these are cognitive things that, that as humans, we kind of completely take them for granted because it happens automatically every time you look at a face. Yeah. Uh, but none of that machinery exists in the machines. Yeah. And, and of course, you know, what, what we need is, you know, a face recognizer that, that can detect whether or not you're a consenting patient. Uh, and whether or not we should store your biometric information. Uh, and if we do, can we trust the validity and the quality of the data? Um, and so you, you realize that, that there's all this machinery that has nothing to do with, with identifying faces, but is central to your human ability, that your native ability, mm. to use it to kind of manage your life. And so we, we realize that to make, you know, trustworthy automated systems that you can give, you know, kind of high value tasks or high risk tasks, uh, that are more complex, you need more pieces of the brain than those cubic centimeters representing the face ID piece. Sure, that makes sense. And so the whole BrainWorks proposition was to build slightly more complicated synthetic brains that solve harder problems. And, and of course, the one we ended up focusing on was uh, digital healthcare in particular. Wow, what, what a journey. And so the, the, the BrainWorks product that you've got now so obviously that that's a, a wonderful explanation, I suppose, of the vision. In practice right now, what does your product do? What does it look like? And tell me a bit about that. Sure. Yeah. So the, the, the product that we're uh, preparing to launch for, for the COVID crisis is a, is a customized version of, of our base um, uh, healthcare assessment application. And, and what we've designed is a service that, that can use any web-connected video camera, uh, looking at your face, head, shoulders, body, uh, and begin to automatically measure your vital signs. 
Right. So, so think about, you know, the fact that for 50 years, the way you take vital signs really hasn't changed. You know, you go into a clinic, you have a nurse or a doctor with a a kit of equipment that they strap to you with cuffs and leads and and finger clamps and so on. Mm -hmm. Um, And then it, you know, takes $5,000 of equipment, probably a couple hours of your time, including travel, uh, amortization costs of the facilities. And, and, and we've lived in a world for so long where, you know, the cost of doing one mm-hmm. vital sign assessment at a, like an FDA clinical, you know, level of accuracy and, and trust costs about $300 US, mm-hmm. maybe half that in the UK, but still expensive. So, you know, the, the result, of course, is that it's so expensive and burdensome, you know, in time and effort and money that, uh, that few people ever have it done until after they have a crisis. Yeah. And so when, you know, as an AI company, you, you, you think, all right, well, you know, we're going to help the, uh, the medical industry. Well, where are the biggest problems? Okay. Heart health kills more people, costs more money. Uh, let's focus there. Started working with the head of cardiology, one of the largest medical groups here in the United States, East coast. Um, and you know, we said, all right, give us your data. That, that's kind of like the, uh, the holdup line for the AI scientist, right? <laughs> give, give me all your data. We'll, we'll, we'll do it. Uh, and, uh, and then they plunked this giant data set in front of us and, and we looked at it and said, well, that's great, you know, but, but that, that's only data after they have the heart attack or after they have the stroke. What about, right. before that? Like, well, we don't really have anything. No one comes in at that point. Yep. And so we, we realized that there was a fundamental problem of the cost and the inconvenience of, of doing these assessments uh, and decided to focus on that problem. Can we automate and, and reduce the cost using these new AI tools, not just of a, of a, a vital sign measurement system, but we wanted to we wanted to replace the whole function of the clinic and the nurse and uh, and the measurement process and the equipment um, using these new tools and, and computer vision that has the AI enhancements. So you know you think of all the things that we learned at DARPA about what the visual cortex was doing and kind of the engineering principles of of the computation and, and the retina and, and so on. Mm. Those were the things that we were able to apply to to develop systems that could look at the micro fine changes of of color in your face as the blood washes across it and uh, look at the tiny, you know, minute swellings of the nostrils and the bobs of the head with each pulse uh, shifts of the shoulder and chest with each breath and kind of synthesize all that to get, you know, very precise uh, vital sign measurements. Got it. And so is the goal then to use those measurements, that data that assumedly you'd be able to get at scale in then I suppose a preventative model. Yes, and, and, and that of course is the, the ultimate goal of the of the overall service, even before we got to COVID, uh, where you know the, the vision was that now that we can use pretty much any web connected camera, um, you know, there's a there's a myriad of use cases starting. That's incredible, by the way, that you use any any web connected camera. That's amazing. And and especially so you're measuring heartbeat, right? And or you know, pulse, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, and, we, we and, can we can measure heart rate and variability and respiration rate. Uh, and for the COVID sure. crisis in particular, we're expanding it to, to look at uh, blood oxygenation as well. Oh, nice. So you can do pulse ox. That's, that's really interesting uh, around yeah, it's, about and, now. And it's, and it's Is that the same mechanism looking at the differences in the kind of hue of the skin? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a slightly different problem. You're looking at slightly different characteristics. And, and of course, you need different data sets to, to yeah. build the system. But, uh, but, but the fundamental challenge and the goal is the same. You know, can we build a system where you don't need any new equipment, any cell phone? Equipment? Yeah reasonably modern vintage will do, uh, any connected uh, PC with a camera on it, any tablet, 
webcams that you might set up in a, in an old folks home or over hospital wards or mm. triage bays and so on. Uh, the idea was that, you know, once we develop it, it's automated. It's, you know, cloud software operations. We're building it on the, you know, the very latest uh, serverless, uh, you know, server architectures in the cloud. And so the economics are, are shockingly inexpensive to the point where we believe we can drive the cost down of these assessments so low that there's no reason why anyone, anytime, anywhere can have these things looking at them all the time. Sure. Instead of just after you have a crisis. So a couple of questions then. So, and this might sound like a really silly question, but how accurate is it? No, it's a great question. I think in a way that's a central question. Um, you know, a lot of these, uh, these wearable devices that people take for granted, uh, you know, the Apple watches, the Fitbits of the world, yeah. um, you know, they, they tend to be in the 10% accuracy range, you know, for the optical detector parts. And, um, and, and as far as the hospitals go, interestingly enough, um, that is considered sufficient for actionable diagnostics. Right. You know, in many cases, uh, you know, the doctors in the emergency wards with the nurses and the cuffs and the carts and all that, uh, they typically get somewhere between 10 and 12% accuracy. Yeah. People are standing around, they're agitated, they sit up, the cuff's placed wrong, you know, there's a calibration problem. Yeah, you know, so so there's there's a myriad of challenges with those things. Uh, and and but you know, even so, you ten percent you kind of get directional changes, the blood pressure's going up, that's bad. <laughs> you yeah. know, the, the heart yeah. rate is really going up, that's yeah. really bad. Uh, you know, so so you that that has been kind of the standard of care for some time. Uh, you know, outside the ICU, which has a little more stringent requirements. But for our system, um, you know, we were able to use some of these new AI techniques uh, to get the uh, accuracy well below 5%. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. And so, and so we're actually able to outperform some of the legacy methods, uh, even while we transition to a non-contact regime. What happens when that, something uh, goes wrong? I think when, was possible before. When, when, when an Got abnormality it. is detected. Okay. I guess let's, let's talk about the COVID model since that's appropriate right now. I mean, for people that want to get this technology and then they use it and it, it shows, you know, a particularly fast heart rate or whatever it is. So they might have, you know, an arrhythmia, it might be AF, it might be another, you know, tachyarrhythmia. I mean, are those insights going straight? Are they just going to the, to the patient themselves? Is it, is it just flagging up to them to go and seek help or is this, are the insights going to any sort of clinician that's part of this as a system or how, how does it fit into any sort of clinical workflow? If you know what yeah, I mean? that, that's a, that's a great question. I, I want to highlight a difference between what we're doing immediately right now in the crisis to address yeah. a crisis need uh, versus what we expect to see over time. Um, and I, I would say that for the crisis need we're we're a little bit bound by um kind of medical ethics and what the FDA will let us do before yeah, we have gone through a full peer reviewed, um, you know, uh, yeah. trial and regulatory approval process. Um, and so the types of things that we can use the system to do right now are what I would call uh, triage and monitoring, triage and screening, not diagnostics. Sure. And so, you know, for the current release, what we're designing really is what I would call a first stage screening tool. And, and let, me, let me explain the need for that. Um, you know, the, one of the key issues in the crisis is that, you know, we've got, you know, hundreds of millions of people, ten, you know, billions of people really globally uh, at risk for this disease. Uh, all of them are wondering, you know, if I wake up with snivels this morning, uh, you know, should I get tested? Mm. You know, do I have the disease? 
Um, or if, if I'm sick with the flu or something that might be COVID, uh, at what point should I seek hospitalization? Yeah. Or if I'm recovering, uh, at what point have my vital signs and general symptoms returned to a healthy baseline where I might consider returning to work without infecting people? Um, and so all of these are, are really critical questions in, at the forefront of everyone's mind. And, and from our perspective, in the long run, yes, we absolutely intend, you know, post FDA approval process to be integrating, you know, diagnostic recommendations and so on, uh, integrating with the, the full medical health record systems globally uh, and, and kind of revolutionizing healthcare, you know, en masse. But for the moment, because of the crisis, we're a little bit early in the development process. And so what we've built is this tool that just answers the need, do I need to be tested? Do I need more medical care? Um, and leaves the diagnostics and the analysis and the ultimate, um, you know, the hard, you know, PCR or serological test uh, to the professionals that, that have the FDA approval to do that safely. Amazing. And I suppose almost like a final question for me then would be, what is it that you guys are looking for right now? We've got listeners in 99 different countries to this podcast. So we, we go out a fair, a fair reach um, to, to people worldwide. And that's, you know, clinicians, it's hospital managers, it's technologists, it's entrepreneurs, you know, lots of different people listen to this podcast. So for the people out there, I mean, what's your kind of ask of our audience if, if you have one? Well, I, I think the, the, the critical issue is that we now have this new tool that can dramatically lower the burden of operating hospitals as they seek to manage the flood of patients with the disease. Um, it's also a tool that, that hospitals and clinics can use to uh, monitor patients that they cannot manage to admit into the hospital for any reason, but yet still give you tools to responsibly look after them remotely with a new level of insight and vital signs rather than just, you know, looking at the video camera and trying to see, do you, do you figure their lips are really blue or is that just the lighting in the room they're in? Um, you know, th these are things that, that we now have the tools to really enhance what they're doing. And, and as the hospitals uh, begin to emerge from the, the initial crush of, of dealing with the overwhelming patient flow, uh, just be aware that these tools are available and we're here to help uh, deploy them globally very, very rapidly. Uh, so, so I think there's kind of a new generation of tools that can really up the standard of care and, and lower the burden of care at the same time, uh, all while giving patients uh, a little more kind of self-determination and, and actualization in, in managing their own health in the meantime. Awesome, Philip. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on, sir. I've thoroughly enjoyed learning about your background and your passion for the future and all your science fiction. And, <laughs> and in fact, your, your actual life, which sounds a lot like science fiction at some points with NASA and, and everything that you've, you've done since. And it, it sounds like a wonderful journey that you've been on. And I thoroughly look forward to seeing where it goes with Brainworks and I would encourage everybody to, to check them out and I'll put the links to Brainworks and uh, to Philip, however he wants to be contacted, I'll ask him afterwards and I'll put, the, I'll put the links to all those different things in the description of this episode. But Philip, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, no, indeed. It's, uh, I hope you can tell it's a labor of love and uh, you know, any way that we can help uh, abet the crisis and save lives, we, we want to do that. Perfect. Thank you, Philip. Thanks, everyone. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. 
Remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.